welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I am your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. Off the top there was our guest today, Susan Lee, who's currently the Chief Strategy and Policy Officer at Chicago CRED, anti-violence program, but former Chicago Deputy Mayor for Public Safety under the Lightfoot Administration. A really interesting conversation about all of that coming up shortly here. If you're listening to the podcast for the first time, please subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube, please smash the subscribe and like buttons. We'd really appreciate it. It really helps us out. Looking to get involved in our work with people, dozens of people from across the country are. Go to cjpnation.org, fill out a form. We'll get back to you soon. And if you want to support our work financially, look at the Patreon link in the notes or in YouTube in the description. Um, we'd really appreciate it. Coming up as we get into season three here next week, um, we, uh, what we're coming up is Jonah Newman from Injustice Watch talking about the Juvenile Temporary Detention Center. Then we have 33rd Ward Alderwoman, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, talking about anti building up a alternative response to 911 in Chicago for mental health and other crises that don't, don't need officers to respond. Something like a cahoots response that you, Eugene Oregon, we've covered in the podcast before. You can find it on our YouTube channel or um, earlier in the podcast for sure. And then we have Inspector General for the City of Chicago, Deborah Witzberg, who's going to be talking about the Proud Boy Cop in Chicago and the issues around whether or not he, he could be fired and why it's not as simple as people think. Um, it's simple about why he should be fired, but it's not necessarily about his connection necessarily to the Proud Boys. It's how he responded during the investigation. And after that, we have Jim Daly from the Chicago Reader. And we're going to be talking about elections for the district councils that came out of the Community Commission Ordinance. That is also on the ballot this year for everyone in Chicago, besides just the mayor and city council. We're going to be talking about the district councils. So that is what's coming up after in the following weeks. Today, we talked to Susan Lee. It's a really engaging conversation about violence prevention, the mayor's office, Chicago, all of that. And then I will be back with you after that conversation to wrap things up. Susan Lee, thank you so much for jumping on the pod. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. Um, so we're going to start. Can you, you did um, violence prevention um, work in L.A. So can you give us, before coming to Chicago, can you give my audience uh, a little bit of a um, background on your work in L.A. before coming to Chicago? Sure. Um, so in 2006, I was asked to come and do a uh, assessment of City of LA's violence reduction strategy, mostly focused on gang violence. And the nine-month process of the research led to a report called the Call to Action, which was, uh, you know, in the end, it was adopted by the city of L.A. as its blueprint for a new way of approaching violence reduction that is not just law enforcement focused, but it is really focused on building a community violence intervention infrastructure in the communities that are most impacted by violence. And so we started with, I think, nine zones, and I think it's grown over the years. That strategy has persisted uh, over the last 15, 16 years. And you know, during that time, we saw uh, a significant drop in violence in, in L.A. 
but really lots of innovations around um, training and professionalizing what we call in Chicago street outreach workers, what we call gang intervention in LA, um, really developing a three-legged stool that allowed for independence and integrity for law enforcement and uh, community violence intervention, but coordination through the mayor's office. And so um, I think that that model has now been embraced by many cities. Um, and so as a result, and I've you know worked in Oakland, I've done work in Baltimore and other places, um, to, to make sure that each jurisdiction is developing a balanced, comprehensive violence reduction strategy that isn't just relying on arrest, that it is really looking at the conditions in the community and really addressing kind of some of the public health challenges that we saw really accentuated during COVID, but having kind of the same root issues that contribute to violence as well. So what brought you from... I'm assuming they approached you, but what brought you from L.A. to Chicago to kind of try, I guess, what I'm assuming has happened, and you can correct me, is that they wanted you to replicate your work you'd done in L.A. to Chicago. Is that correct? Well, so I've in L.A., I was not inside City Hall, and so I was uh, inside, outside partner to the city uh, and to LAPD. And I think people saw the innovation that was happening in LA and a contingent of stakeholders from Chicago came to visit LA. That's where I met a lot of the my current colleagues in Chicago. And you know, through that process, you know, I met Arnie um, and, and he asked me to join Chicago Cred, um, really to come and uh, jumpstart the coalition of funders who had decided that they were going to make a significant investment into community violence intervention. And so, yes, the thought was that were there elements of what happened in L.A. that could be done in Chicago? Um, and But, you know, every city is very unique and special in different ways. And so Chicago needed its own strategy, um, you know, not sort of uh, not, you know, that, that integrates all the major principles and uh, pillars of the work, but really, it, you know, tailored to Chicago's specific challenges and conditions. What would you say, now that you've been doing this for a while in Chicago, what specific, like, what are the main specific challenges that you see that are unique to Chicago that weren't found in LA necessarily? Yeah, and there are many. And, you know, in some ways, um, you know, I came to Chicago, uh, I started coming to Chicago in 2016, right, at, right when the violence spike happened after the uh, death of Laquan McDonald. And, um, you know, it struck me, multiple things struck me about Chicago. One is just the sheer volume of violence. So, you know, Chicago is not the most violent city in terms of per capita homicide. You know, there are cities like St. Louis or Detroit, mm -hmm. but in in sheer number of shootings and, um, you know, homicides that we see in Chicago on a day-to-day -day basis, um, it's just on its own level. You know what I mean? Um, so last year we had 4,000 plus shootings, 800 plus homicides. You know, that was more homicides and shootings than New York and L.A. combined last year. So, and, and, you know, compared to those two other large cities, Chicago's uh, per capita homicide rate is, you know, I think five times higher than New York and I think three times higher than LA. And so 
I think the intensity of the violence really struck me and sort of the generation after generation of that level of violence and, and the depth of trauma, therefore, in the communities most impacted by violence was just um, out of this world. And then what, what other thing that struck me was, despite having this very entrenched violence dynamic in Chicago, you didn't have kind of the coordination mechanisms that other cities had developed over the last 10, 15 years. And so, you know, there, there, the violence reduction field has done a lot of research and has sort of now, you know, benchmarked lots of best practices and research and so forth. And none of that was really in the water of violence reduction in Chicago. And so that also struck me as, as the third largest city, like, you know, where was all this evidence and information and, and coordination that needed to happen? Um, and then thirdly and lastly, I would say it's just the, uh, the history of segregation um, and, and, and the entrenched nature of racial inequity and structural racism within Chicago's um, sort of culture is, is um, you know, I mean, we have that in most urban centers, but really Chicago, it is very stark. Um, and that struck me as well. Yeah, I think that's something that does not get the play that it needs to in the media and needs to get addressed. Um, I, I I mean, I always tell, I've, I've had a history when I was living in Chicago over like the last 15 years before I moved to D.C. When I had friends visit or family visit, I would say, okay, great, let's go downtown, let's go to the beach, let's go do things, go to Lincoln Park, Bucktown, great. Now I'm going to take you on the outside the potted plants tour. Yeah. Right. And I've had visitors from other countries and stuff. And I'm like, there's another Chicago that you need to see. Yeah. Right. And I would and drive or, drive a little bit on the west side, drive a little bit on the south side. It's like these are the conditions people are forced to live in in this city. So when you hear violence, don't just automatically think, well, bad people. Think about these circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, when I first started coming to Chicago in 2016, 2017, I had uh, a work going on in Austin neighborhood. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I was told there was not a single sit down restaurant in Austin at the time for a neighborhood of 100,000 people. Um, and that there was not a, uh, you know, a supermarket. Um, that could be easily accessed by the community. And so, I mean, you know, since then, lots, some things have changed, but that is what we're talking about, which is, you know, that we have a disinvestment legacy that has essentially devastated these communities, not last three years, not last five years, but over decades. I 100% agree. I, like in 2011, 12, Rom closed those 50 schools. And it was just more of a trend that mayors have been doing forever in Chicago, which is slowly pulling money from these communities and, and disinvestment. That only leads to more violence and more crime, right? It's, it's a, you're setting up the circumstances to breed that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, one of my um, heroes in this work, Father Greg Boyle, in LA um, has, um, you know, a saying that he does, which is, you know, it's not so much that people are um, engaging in violence because they are bad or, 
you know, they want to have, um, you know, money. It's really the absence of hope that really leads to the cycle of violence, because as long as you think that you're not going to have the opportunity to move forward in your life, then there's very little at stake in terms of um, engaging in violence and, you know, continuing that cycle of trauma. And I, I just want to emphasize the issue of trauma. You know, Chicago Cred mm -hmm. serves now over 500, 600 um, participants who are some of the most, you know, highest risk individuals in terms of engaging in violence or being victimized by violence. And, you know, without exception, you know, 100%, I guess, of the participants and even some of the staff have experienced the level of trauma that is... Um, unthinkable for some people in this country. And I think that day in and day out, exposure to trauma, experience of trauma, and the inability to access support to address that trauma is, um, is devastating. Um, and and it, it is at the root of a lot of the cycle of violence we see. Right. I, I, people have no idea. They're like, why do they make they, whoever they are that is doing this violence, why do they make such bad decisions? These young kids are making such bad decisions. And I give them two answers. One, my wife's a PhD economist. When she was in grad school at UIC, she did this thing where she would uh, talk about uh, financial planning and stuff with CPS kids. And talking about compound interest and what it would build and how you could save for your retirement and stuff. And kids are like, compound interest? That's 20 years from now. I'm not going to be alive. The odds yeah. of me being alive or not in jail are very slim. And that was, and then professors at, at, in my grad school, uh, grad department at UIC in the crim department, did all these things with kids and getting kids and cops together. And the kids are like, guys, we don't have hope. Especially young men of color were like, I'm going to be dead or in jail by 30. If, first of all, that is an incredible societal failure that they have those thoughts. That said, if you can't cure that, if you can't change that kind of mindset from taking root, how do you expect them to make better decisions? They don't think they have a future. They don't think society values them. Like you just keep taking money from their communities. There's no jobs. There's the schools are crumbling or they're closing. All of that breeds this, and I just don't. Under, I I can't understand how like political figures here aren't doing something to as an emergency to address that. We know that exists now. How do you? We've got to do something so when children, all children in Chicago grow up, they don't have to have that, that mindset is not bred into them by their circumstances, or we're not going to get anywhere. I'm, I'm ranting a little bit, but it's just, it bothers me that it's just it, absent from the discussion. Um, okay, I'm going to move on to another question before I keep ranting here, because it bugs me. Okay. Um, when you came, I, I was, if get your opinion on, um, for lack of a better word, the competency within the CPD, not the, some of the members, but within the leadership. I know when I people come from outside the city, and I've known this for years, they come and they meet the leadership and they try to talk to them or some reform, some academic comes and they're like, wow, <laughs> like this department is so screwed up and so poorly managed. Like, 
Naval, like we heard things and you see some of the scandals come on, but like I've been to seven other departments and wow, they're just so much better run than what's going on in Chicago. I wanted to get your feelings coming from LA to Chicago, what your feelings about that. Um, it surprised me for a second largest police department in the country to be in the state it was. However, um, I have seen many departments who might arguably be in that similar space of not having evolved into the 21st century policing model like some of the other large city departments have done. Uh, and, and actually, it gave me a lot of pause. Um, and it was, I would, and I tell this to everybody is that, you know, in making the decision to come to Chicago, the thing that made me pause and kind of say, should I really be doing this was the state of CPD, because it was, it is absolutely necessary to have a police department that is effective and is, um, is, is conducting constitutional policing. Let's not even say progressive policing, but constitutional policing for that to be an important part of a violence reduction strategy at the city level. And it was not at all clear in 2000, you know, 16, 17, that that's kind of what was going to happen. And then we got the consent decree. And so then, you know, it, 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 it put us on a trajectory to be able to at least attempt to get there. Um, Having said that, you know, Chicago Police Department has uh, has had lots of leadership changes, and each of those leaders have um, contributed something that altogether, if they had all stayed together and become part of the department's culture, could have been, um, you know, really helpful in putting CPD in the right place. So, for example, there used to be a time when CPD was really known for community policing, you know, mm -hmm. and that sort of went to the wayside. And then there was a time when, you know, I know a lot, there's a lot of controversy about Gary McCarthy, but he did bring in Comstat, the data-driven approach to accountability and uh, neighborhood policing that, you know, had it been really implemented in consistently and sustainably, we would have been in a better spot. Um, you know, and Eddie Johnson for all of his, you know, scandals and whatnot, you know, really did emphasize the the establishment of SDSCs and the ATCs, which are kind of the technology-driven infusion of technology into uh, smart policing um, and so forth. So all of those things individually, um, had they all come together in a consistent and sustainable way, I think the department would probably be in a better place. Um, but it's, it's as an organization, I think that um, it requires some fundamental reform that we hope that, you know, the consent decree gets us there. But, you know, I have my, as you, I'm sure you know of the op-eds that I have written mm -hmm. and so forth. And so, you know, I have concerns about that, about that trajectory. Okay. Um, I do want to get to the op-ed, but I got a couple of questions before that. How, how, um, think of the best way to word this. Um, how has politics of the city impacted violence reduction and the possibilities that could be found in that space? That's a really big question um, because there's the big politics, key politics and small p politics. And 
um, I think this is the way I would say it, and this is not like in the last two years or three years, but it's really generational in Chicago, is there is not a sense of one Chicago. You know, there's kind of the downtown and the business community and the north side. Then there's the west and the south side. And it really, people who live in those places and work in those spaces do not see each other as one Chicago. Um, and unless we can get to this sense of one Chicago, that what happens on the west side does impact the downtown and does impact the north side. And I think that, ironically, because of the way violence has um, shifted to downtown and north side, that now we're seeing a little bit more of that. But I do think there is this sense of great divide um, and the, the south and the west side is has has despite like you know day in and day out violence in those communities i i don't think that that was top of mind for not only political leaders but business leaders civic leaders and i think 2016 sort of brought the the civic leadership more into it and i think in the last year and a half we've seen more business community leaders um sort of echoing concerns and, and so forth. So I think that's one of the big dynamics of Chicago that um, has prevented us from having a coherent citywide strategy. Um, the other thing, and I'm, I'm sure this is not going to be very popular, is we have 50 aldermen um, and a strong mayor. And I think the politics of City Hall at times um, prevent the ability to have kind of a big picture citywide strategy move forward because mm -hmm. each of those 50 aldermen um, who are elected to do this, which is, you know, they're really concerned about their ward. And so um, at times it's very difficult to see and knit together a coalition of people who can see the value of, of a citywide approach. And that's not unique to Chicago, but Chicago is unique for having so many aldermen and, and such small uh, small wards. Yeah, and I, that has been a huge issue. And I have looked at, like, I think, you know, we, we're in the midst of this political cycle now. The midterms are over. We're going into a city elections. We have a mayoral race that's going to be contentious. Um, there will be aldermat, some aldermanic ones that are also, but in the mayor's race, and you can see it on social media now, this, like, some of the um, some of the challengers just ripping the mayor relentlessly for any violence that happens downtown, in the loop, north side, um, and um, one of those challengers in particular, and I'll say his name, Paul Vales, has been around for a long time, and I, I wish we would have seen that kind of pressure about a shooting on the west and south sides, because to me. There, they think it's politically expedient. People will only care that there's violence in, in let's say, it's in white communities, <laughs> white rich communities, or you know, at least middle class above communities. People will care about that, so that's what we can challenge on. And it's that kind of thing that Chicago is stuck in, right? Um, you know, there's a certain level of, of, unfortunately, there's a certain number of shootings and a certain number of murders that will get reported out every weekend in the weekend count but won't really be a political problem for anyone. As long as they're on the south and west sides and there's no huge number in one shooting, we're fine with whatever is there. 
right? We're fine with that. One of the things the pandemic has brought us is that has spread some. Um, and I, I hope the political will will be driven to not only resolve it in, in white rich areas, but in throughout our city. Um, but like, it's very hard, as you said, it's very hard to get politicians from the North side. They're like, yeah, please give the South and West side more money and take some from our community. Um, and I know when Rahm Emanuel came in, he, he closed three police districts and the aldermen were ripping him relentlessly for it, even though Daly had a consultant's report back in the early 90s saying you needed to do that to cut the management. And I talked to some of the aldermen and they're like, oh, no, we told city, we told the mayor's office we were going to do that. We have to rip them, but they still have to close them because they need to be done. But I can't possibly go on television and say, close my police district. Right. And it's like, oh, my God, it's such theater. Okay. What when you came to Chicago, what did you envision as being achievable for Chicago in say the first like five years from a violence reduction possibility? There was probably three things that I wanted to get done, and some of it has been done and some of it has not been done. Um, first and foremost, I wanted to create and strengthen a violence intervention, community-based violence intervention infrastructure. And we have largely to the, to the you know, really the courage, courage of the philanthropic community who invested enormous capital and not just funding, but, you know, social capital and whatnot to create, to sort of fund the first basis of that, which is in the form of communities partnering for peace and Ready Chicago. Um, and obviously, Chicago Cred also contributed to that by create not only providing funding, but also having our own services out there. And so that was the most important thing to do, because, uh, you know, without that infrastructure, you don't have a way in which you're actually intervening in the conflicts that can lead to violence in a real time way. And so we needed to establish that kind of first responder who are community people who are credible and have um, you know, traction with the people in the community and those who are in the thick of violence to be able to intervene and, and you know, sort of interrupt that cycle of violence. So that was one of the most important um, things that I thought Chicago needed. And I worked with many partners to, to make that happen, you know, in addition to the funders, you know, obviously now we have a network of, I think 25 organizations in 25 communities or something like that, um, that is doing this work. And the most importantly, they're doing it in a way that is uh, networked and collaborative with each other. So they're not just doing their own thing. They're all kind of trying to impact the level of violence in the same way and more and more data driven. So that was one important thing. The second thing is I wanted to see if we could create a public sector funding stream that would make this a sustainable thing because private funders could only go so far. And it was really mm -hmm. the mandate of the Partnership for Safe and Peaceful Communities, which is the coalition of 50 plus funders, to demonstrate that there is proof of concept here, that this can work, and then shift it to public sector. And so when the opportunity to came to um, you know, help establish that public funding stream by joining uh, Mayor Lightfoot's administration, I sort of you know, did it because I said, you know, that's kind of the next thing that we really need is a public sector stream. And, you know, lo and behold, we did have, um, you know, CARES dollars from COVID as well as ARPA 
dollars that came forward. And so now we have a pretty robust public sector funding, not just from the city, but also from the county and the state. Um, and, and with uh, President Biden, we've had a sort of resounding uh, backing of the idea that public dollars should go to community violence intervention. And so that's, that's been a really uh, uh, game changer in many ways. And then the third thing that I really wanted to see was a, you know, um, this idea of one Chicago, you know, that that we needed a level of um, understanding about violence reduction that would help police become more effective and community violence intervention to be more professionalized and that um, and that City Hall could be a partner to both of those entities to implement a citywide strategy. And so, you know, we wrote the plan when I was at City Hall as deputy mayor. Um, and, and that element of, you know, CPD effectiveness, reform, um, and, and is there a citywide strategy or not? I think that's kind of the outstanding question at this point. Okay, so we're going to turn now, uh, I got about four or five more questions, but we're going to turn it to your op-ed. Okay. If you don't mind. Um, so you you have a phrase in there and it's all over the news and you can't help but hear it, which is, not that you said it, but you're quoting others. We should just let the police be the police. How do you, what does that mean to you? How do you interpret when people say that, what they're meaning by that? It... Um... To me, it suggests that there are some who are saying that reform is not important and that were police to return to the way that they were policing, these, the, especially the West and the Southside communities, that we would somehow magically have less violence. That is a truly a regressive thought. Um, it, it, Without an effective police force that is doing constitutional policing, we cannot hope to get out of this violence conundrum that Chicago is in. And so it, it greatly concerns me that there are not just political leaders, but also business leaders saying that, um, which then to me shows that we need more um education and enlightenment about what a truly effective violence reduction strategy looks like. You know, there was a book uh, that said, the way we never were, which is, you know, we, uh, you know, conservatives to some extent, but a lot of people kind of hearken back to a time that was better than the time we were in. But it isn't really better. You just thought it was better. It's better like, for some, but it was terrible for lots of people. I mean, right? Like so for the vast majorities, it wasn't like back to the fifties. Well, I think all the women in this country would have something to say about going back to that. I know my PhD economist wife who works, you know, works forty hours and is kicking butt in her career, and not a mother would have something to say about that. So when I hear that, that's it. It's it's to me like. They're saying, well, wait, was Chicago better four years ago or was the policing better eight years ago? I don't understand. What exact time do you want to go back to? Can you point me to a time when it was great? Um, I also think one of our problems our society has and our city has specifically, we very much so 
overestimate the impact police have on violence and crime going up or down. The mere fact that crime goes up means the cops did bad. And the mere fact that crime went down for numbers went down, they're the greatest. When in reality, they may, until you ferret it out and do all the research, they may have had less of an impact. They may have done actually a really good job and violence still went up, right? They could have had some successful initiatives. It's like, it's much more complicated. People don't like nuance. Um, so when I, I, my skin crawls when I hear we should let the police be the police. And I also think it's bad for the police. Like, I think we don't, we're not taking into consideration when people say that the actual safety and life and job, uh, conditions on the job for those officers, you're just throwing into the grinder. Um, you know? Yeah. And I think, um, we as a society ask too much of the police. Um, mm -hmm. I think that they're asked to be mental health workers and social workers and, you know, and they have to respond to all kinds of issues that probably doesn't require a, a person with a gun to respond. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. probably is counterproductive in some of those situations. And and I think that's what um, the post-George Floyd era has forced us to confront is how can we um, have an alternative response to types of challenges and issues and conflicts that happen in the community that isn't the police only, you know? And I think, you know, some of the jurisdictions are exploring that and Chicago is as well. And so, you know, you can only hope uh, that those efforts will, um, you know, prove to be successful. I had a friend who was a watch commander that moved off and has since retired, but he used to tell his officers when they came to his district or new officers, I'd say, listen, guys, we are the social service resp first responders, right? We should be the response of last resort because all we have is cuffs, guns, a baton, right? And arrest, that's all we have. But in Chicago, we're always the first response. Kid won't go to school. There's an argument. Anything, the garbage is getting picked up. It's always the police they call because if they call 911 enough, a cop has to show up. Where yeah. a city official or Streets and Sands doesn't. Um, and that's doing a disservice to our, the men and women we have in, in the job, that, but no one wants to talk about that. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about this consent decree. Um, in the, in the um, context of, for ladies and gentlemen on the pod, you know, uh, just recently the Superintendent fired Bob Boyk, who was former executive director of the Office of Constitu Constitutional Policing and Reform, and he was a guest on this podcast with a couple of researchers from the University of Chicago, I think back in late 2020. Um, stage one, you talk about stage one, which is uh, writing new policies. They have about 72% compliance with that. So that doesn't seem too bad. But here's the big one, ladies and gentlemen, retraining officers on to be to do their jobs in compliance with those new policies, 14.5%. What are your thoughts about how that actually, how good or bad that is? And can we really move forward in constitutional policing if we have the, the, executive, the executive director of the police, the office that's supposed to be doing this fired? Um, and I know Superintendent, I, Superintendent Brown at one point talked about bringing officers back from retirement, like volunteer officers, which blew me away. Like, I don't know if that's the worst idea, but I think I'd want a structure in place of people that are being paid to run that. <laughs> I don't know. So I just wanted to get your feelings on that. I thought those numbers were pretty astounding. 
the Chicago consent decree is structured in a way that the policies that get done first, then you do the training and uh, operationalization, and then you kind of lead to culture change and audit and accountability. So it's not surprising that we have more compliance on policy because it was designed, those deadlines were designed to go first. Having said that, Knowing that training, operationalization, and culture change is really at the heart of the consent decree, um, you would assume that a leadership that is committed to reform would plan for the adequate implementation of training and operationalization. And that's the piece that is really uh, bothersome about the firing of Bob Boyk. It isn't so much that Bob Boyk is the guy who's going to make it happen. I mean, he's a great guy and he has done some phenomenal work, but it's the reason why he was fired. He raised a legitimate question about number of trainers needed to fulfill a consent decree obligation. And for simply raising that issue and asking the leadership to reconsider the decision to gut the training division of people, he was fired. So it's not even so much that it, he was the head of executive director of the Constitutional Policing and Reform Office, which is in and of itself, as you point out, important, but it was the reason why he was fired, which suggests that there may not be proactive thinking and structuring going on on how to train and operationalize the consent decree ultimately leading to the culture change that we all recognize is what CPD needs in order to earn the trust of the community, because that's really the ultimate goal, right? CPD needs to earn the trust of the community back, or I don't know if it ever had it, but like that's the <laughs> only way you're going to get um, an effective police force. Right. And it all comes down, well, a couple things. I've had uh, friends on the job, and one of my friends said to me, he was on some task force with federal agents at one point, the FBI, and he was talking to them, he's like, they get hands-on training on use of force every year, right? Um, and he, he said to me, he goes, one of our problems is no one wants to put their hands on anyone, so everyone just tases people. He goes, but the FBI, they get training hand-to-hand -hand every year. Like, they get that refresher every year. And at this point, he was about 14, 15 years on the job, and he's like, Tracy, I haven't been trained on anything. I haven't been back to the academy in 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, how is that? I mean, it is possible. It's a money thing. It's a lack of desire. No, They're no. Every police department that I know of has training, annual training requirements. CPD went for decades without one, and the consent decree mandated this training requirement. Mm -hmm which is why it is a key element of the culture change that police officers need to refresh and be updated. So, for example, search warrants. This is a very complicated field of policing, um, and, and the law is always shifting around that. If you don't get updated training on search warrants and, you know, uh, Fourth Amendment on, a, on, a, on an annual basis at the very least, I don't know how you keep up with, with the way to do it constitutionally. Yeah, I, I don't either. I've talked to officers and not like, you know, the, the small number that I've talked to means all of them. But there is definitely 
concern within the rank and file at the patrol level of of being undertrained and being um also they they have an and I found this for years you know with the merit promotion thing I officers have a lot of um some officers have a serious doubt in their bosses and whether or not they're equipped um to be mentors and to teach them um which is bad if you're trying to you know move a department forward um I've always thought the the lack of supervision has been an issue and also like a strong management you know um I don't think the management, like oversight, Sergeant, great, you have 10 officers. At one point in CPD, they had to see them twice a shift. So that if they drove by an officer, even if it was just on the street and they both drove in opposite directions, that was a, over, that was, they would log it in their book and that was, that was a, uh, a little yeah. checkbox for being supervising your officers. So there's yeah. a lot of those problems. All right, we are back. I once again, I'd like to thank Susan Lee for taking the time to sit down with us. We really appreciate it. It's really interesting work. I just want to caution everyone. There's a little bit of, I don't know, propaganda marketing going on. The people that do the anti-violence work, like Chicago Cred, the Communities Partnering for Peace, or CP4P, they do amazing work. And their efforts should not be undervalued whatsoever. However, when you have political whores, you know, people that will sell you anything just to get power, say anything and sell you anything and lie and manipulate to get you power, be careful. Part of that is we're doing all this anti-violence work. We're funding this anti-violence work. Ladies and gentlemen, these communities, we need that anti-violence work funded. It is not the holy grail. These communities are not going to turn around just because Chicago goes from 700 murders to 400 murders, which would be a massive decrease right now, right? Or to 300 or 200. The poverty is not changing in these communities. Oh, well, if you just reduce violence, then you'll have economic growth and you'll have investment in these communities. No, what you'll have is gentrification. That's already happening. That'll probably just speed up. The circumstances for these people will improve because violence went down, and that's great. Are the economic Changes going to be coming? No. Is poverty going to change? No. No. That's a simple thing. Long-term, meaningful long-term changes in these communities have to, at the same time, address violence. But they really, really, probably more importantly, have to address, in my opinion, the poverty. The intergenerational transmission of poverty that is going on in these communities and has been for decades. And people are doing very, very little to change it. Daily did almost nothing. Rom did slightly, slightly, slightly more. And Lightfoot is doing slightly, 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 slightly more maybe than Rom. And all of it is crap old. All of it will always fail. We have a billion dollar TIF fund in Chicago that pays for parks and white communities and pays for that arena over by McCormick Place and pays for all these things. And it's paying for the, helping pay for the redevelopment of the Lincoln Yards. Ladies and gentlemen, the communities are not going to change as TIF dollars keep getting sucked out of the general fund that could be spent on re in redeveloping these communities from the ground up with the people there. Instead, it's going to pay for all kinds of projects that are off the books. Nothing's going to change. I'm not trying to downplay the value of the work of the anti-violence people, but I'm just telling you that 
when you hear some of the anti-violence work, not excuse me, but when you hear some of them market themselves and then the politicians latch onto it, like that's the holy grail, that's the work, that's what, and for the politicians, they hear is like, this is what I've got to do to get reelected. That ain't it. Things are not going to change. They're going to get better in that violence has gone down and that's great and we need to do that. But the economics of those communities aren't going to change. It's just the bottom line. We need to change the economics in these communities. And it's very easy. Life with a pen could take most, if not all, the TIF money every year, over a billion dollars now that is collected and put in off of book, off book accounts uh, that are not in the general revenue and not don't go right to the schools or the parks. She could, with a stroke of a pen, pretty much take just about every dollar out of the TIF funds, market it as... Uh, categorize it as excess funds and take it and do whatever she wants with it. The fact that she's not means that she just wants to, she is just worried about continuing to get reelected, keeping, keeping white developers and white North siders happy. White North siders now the near South side, West side, right? The South loop, West loop, Fulton market, little Italy, a little bit to the extent, right? That That's who she's worried about keeping happy. And until that changes, nothing is going to change in Chicago. We have an endemic problem with violence. We have an endemic problem with the intergenerational transmission of poverty, and we won't do anything about it. They're only attacking the violence on the margins. The true anti-violence work, not to, to answer it, the true cures to the violence, a lot of the street violence, ladies and gentlemen, not necessarily in the homes, but in the streets, is reducing poverty, elimination of poverty, but no one's talking about it. And really, there are very few people in the city council um, that you're hearing speak about it, right? My guest next week is one of them. 33rd Alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez is one of those people. But have you heard it in the campaign trail and the mayor? Oh, I've got this plan, I've got that plan. Plan? Sign a piece of paper, take all the money, give it to those communities. That's the plan. The plan always seems to wiggle out and make sure or just slightly increase what the person before them did, just slightly, so they can keep sending it to white communities, right? Got to make sure Google's happy. Got to make sure Fulton Mark is happy. Got to make sure the West Loopers and the South Loopers and Lincoln Parkers are all happy. Till that changes, nothing's really going to change. That's sad, but true. Okay. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Next week, once again, we're going to have a conversation with um, 33rd Alderman Ronrique Sanchez. Oh, yes. Um, and I'm sorry. Next week is Jonah Newman. My apologies. Next week is Jonah Newman from Injustice Watch. It's an amazing, amazing reporting we're talking about related to um, the Juvenile Temporary Detention Center and Solitary Confinement. Really great, engaging conversation sad as can be because it just the or the institution is so broken and then we got alderwoman rodriguez sanchez after that if you got ideas for topics you want discussed and people you want interviewed on the podcast please let us know hit us up on our social media instagram uh twitter youtube you can write comments in the and we're we'll definitely take uh um suggestions we're we are definitely open to topics and people you want interviewed once again thank you so much ladies and gentlemen i'll be back with you next week